Well, good morning and happy Easter. My name is Rob and I'm a pastor here. Aaron, thank you for reading scripture for us. We are glad that you are here this morning. If you're visiting with friends and family, it's good to see you. We need to let you know we are not a perfect church, but we are perfectly loved. And on this Easter Sunday, we celebrate the greatest display of that love and the power of that love to overcome our brokenness and the grave. To orient us a little bit this morning, I want us to think about the relationship between the familiar and the unfamiliar, between uh, the expected and unexpected or surprise. All right, students, you know something about this, right? Like you're expecting to go into class and have a lecture, all right? And then all of a sudden the teacher says, surprise, pop quiz. I think we all know that when unexpected things enter into our lives, our emotions change. And sometimes our lives change, right, kids? When the, when the teacher says, pop quiz, your emotions change based on how prepared you are for that quiz, right? And your life changes, your grade changes based on how prepared you were for that quiz. Here's a little example of how this plays out in my life recently. Um, my wife, Liz, in grad school for occupational therapy, which means she is going through anatomy labs with cadavers, all right? She's doing clinical rotations through rehab centers and um, retirement centers. And so um, our dinner conversations have taken unexpected turns recently, all right? And it's because I'm not familiar and you know, I don't expect conversations about body parts or bodily fluids or the combination thereof, uh, all within HIPAA regulations. I'm not, I'm not prepared for that. And so when that comes up at dinner, something inside of me changes, right? I like lose my appetite. I'm like, I'm just trying to eat rice and salmon here. I'm not ready for all this. When unexpected things and surprising things enter into our life, it affects what goes on in here and how we live out there. And here's our challenge. It is Easter Sunday. You know what to expect on Easter Sunday. Kids, you know what to expect at Easter. One, kids, y'all did incredible up here. That was fantastic. Well done. I was just ready to say amen. Let's go. Um, uh, kids, Easter Sunday, right? It's hunting for eggs. It's chocolate. It's bunnies. Adults, you know what to expect for Easter. If you're coming to church, you're going to hear about Jesus and his resurrection. Even if you're not sure about Jesus and his resurrection, even if you're here this morning and you don't believe in it, you at least knew coming in. That's what we're going to talk about. No one came in thinking, hey, maybe we're going to watch some highlights of the masters up here, right? Like no one thought that. But see this. When it comes to the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection, the ones we just read of in Mark and the ones we read of in all of the Gospels, they didn't respond to the resurrection as if they were familiar with it. They didn't respond in a way that, that indicated they expected that to happen. In fact, the words that we read are trembling, astonished, alarmed, and afraid. And my sense is that unless we recover some of that wonder and astonishment, unless we see some of the unexpected and unsettling truths of the resurrection, then its power and purpose is going to be lost on us. And so 
My prayer this morning is that we will see it and that it will change what happens in here and how we live out there. So I'm going to pray for us and then we will dive into our text. Pray with me. Mighty and merciful Father, save us from distraction and save us from pretending this morning, from despair and pride. Would you rescue us from a familiarity that, that leads to complacency or disinterest? By your spirit, help us to see Jesus and the hope that is found in him. We ask these things in his name. Amen. All right, this morning we're trying to avoid treating the resurrection with some kind of clinical or humdrum familiarity. All right, and we see that the scene that we've been introduced to is a grave scene. It's, a, it's the tomb. And I want us to see who is going there and how they leave. Right? We read in the initial uh, verse there, Mark verse, uh, verse 1 says, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. They're going to the grave to anoint the body of Jesus, a very common practice in that context. And then something happens, something that changes everything, and we're going to look at that, but skip to the end, fast forward to the end. How do they leave this scene? Right? They leave the scene and Mark says, they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. What changed? Something happened. And that's what we're after this morning. We're after encountering the unexpected in a way that leads to this kind of astonishment. And the path to recovering this kind of wonder, it starts with looking at what Mark is talking about and who Mark is talking about here and how that, how that speaks to and fulfills our deepest longings and changes the way that we live our lives. So if you want some signposts for the path this morning, we're going to talk about looking, longings, and living. Looking, longings, and living. We're going to really camp out in verses 5 to 7. But before we get there, we see our first clue that something unexpected has gone down. Mark names the three women over and over again. He says, hey, these three women, they saw Jesus on the cross. These three women, they saw Jesus' body put in the tomb. One of the things he's doing is giving eyewitness sources that they could go and ask and talk to about it. And he says, these, so, so if these three women saw Jesus on the cross, saw him go in the tomb, that means they saw this very large stone. Don't you love how like Mark's making it clear? This would have been hundreds of pounds. Very large stone was rolled in front of it. So when they're walking to the gravesite, they know all of that's gone down. What they don't know is how are we going to get this stone out of the way? And then they rock up to the scene <laughs> And the question's answered for them. It's already been done. And so Mark says they stepped inside and they saw this young man dressed in a white robe. And that's Mark's way of describing an angel. And the man says this to him. Hey, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him looking. We're talking about looking. And the angel says, you're looking for Jesus. He's risen. He's not here. Look, that's where he was. And so the first step on our path to recovering wonder and astonishment is looking at and examining these claims about Jesus Christ and who he was. 
Did Jesus Christ really exist? Was he really a person? 2015, they do a survey in the UK. 40% of adults say that they're not really sure if Jesus really existed, was a historical figure. They're just not sure. You need to know this. When it comes to the reality that in the first century, there was a Jewish rabbi named Jesus who proclaimed to be the Messiah and was uh, persecuted and killed by the, the Roman official Pilate, there's really irrefutable evidence that supports that. I went to school down in North Carolina, all right, and going to college down in North Carolina, we knew that over in Chapel Hill at UNC, there was this religious uh, professor of religious studies, New Testament expert named Bart Ehrman, all right? Bart Ehrman, not a, not a Christian in any way, in fact, professed uh, agnostic atheist, but New Testament expert. And even Ehrman says, the reality is that whatever else you may think about Jesus, he certainly did exist. Ehrman says that this is a view held by virtually every expert on the planet. Let me ask you, have you looked at Jesus and considered his life and his claims? Not have you um, looked at how politicians try to use Jesus to accomplish their agenda? Not at how Christians sometimes try to use Jesus to bring about their kingdom and not his kingdom. Have you looked at Jesus. Christians, even if you've been following him for a long time, when's the last time you looked at Jesus? Or maybe sometimes you've had such a tragic experience in your life. You've experienced suffering to such an extent, or you've already adopted philosophical assumptions and presuppositions, and you just don't see any way that Jesus relates to those or explains those. So You've written him off without looking at him. I can tell you before a Christian, I was a Christian, that's exactly what I did. And then I looked at Jesus. Someone helped me to look at Jesus. And maybe you're like, okay, Rob, I'm willing to acknowledge there's, there's a guy named Jesus. He was historical. I'll give you that. But like the resurrection, like rising from the dead, Rob, it's 2023. We have iPhones now. Like, right? Like, we are modern people with modern sensibilities. Not so fast, right? One, modern people with many modern minds, uh, much sharper than mine, hold to the, to the physical resurrection of Jesus. Ian Hutchinson, all right? professor of nuclear science and engineering at MIT. Ever heard of it? Uh, he holds to the bodily uh, resurrection. He's written plenty of articles on plasma fission and um, you know, nuclear fission, but he's also written an article called, Can a Scientist Believe in the Resurrection? Three Hypotheses, where he argues for his belief in the physical resurrection. You can see about it in this book that we have out in the lobby if you have more questions. But I want you to know this. Many significant minds today have no problem holding to the physical resurrection of Jesus. So that's number one. Number two, it's just overly simplistic to write off like all first century people like, oh yeah, well, those are just gullible forebears and we're, we're smarter than that now, all right? Please know this. 
Ancient Greek worldview had no place for a bodily resurrection. They didn't expect it. They didn't think that could happen. Jews, yep, they had a general sense of a general resurrection that, that the whole world was going to be renewed. But this individual resurrection, like they didn't have a category for that. So much so that Jesus tells the disciples, I am going to be killed. And on the third day, I am going to rise again. He tells them that twice. Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 10. He tells them twice. So right when Jesus is killed and day three comes, the disciples are like, all right, it's go time. No. They didn't have a category for it. They didn't expect it in any way. Day three comes and no one is there except for these three women with their funeral spices to anoint a very dead Jesus. They didn't expect it. In the, in the modern worldview, in the ancient worldview, there's not this category for resurrection. So what happens? They experience evidence that requires them to change their worldview. They experience evidence that requires them to change their worldview. The, the empty tomb just demands an answer, right? So like the religious officials of the day, when the tomb was empty, what did they say? They said, oh, well, the disciples stole the body and they're hiding it. Well, how believable is that? That this ragtag group of cowards has suddenly turned into SEAL Team 6 and they've overcome these Roman guards and they've taken the body and they've hidden it and then they died hiding it. In fact, they died for what they're trying to pull off. They di died for a lie. That doesn't hold water. All kinds of explanations for the empty grave, right? Jesus never really died. It's just a legend. Please examine them, but I'm telling you, they are not compelling. The empty grave demands an answer. Because you know what? Uh, you can go to Tiananmen Square in Beijing right now and Chairman Mao's body is right there. You can go to Cairo, Cairo, you can go to Tahrir Square, take a little walk, and you will find mummified bodies of, of pharaohs, Egyptian leaders, 4,000, 5,000 years old. Their bodies are there. Medina, Saudi Arabia, Muhammad's body is there. Buddha, his ashes, his teeth, his bones spread all over India, all over the world. But you go to Jerusalem, there's nowhere to line up and see the body of Jesus. He is risen and an empty tomb demands an answer. Have you looked at Jesus and have you looked at his resurrection and really considered it? Looking at Jesus and seeing how what Mark says about who he is and the resurrection fulfills our deepest longings. Our longings for hope in the face of death and hope in the face of failure. <laughs> the angel tells the woman, Jesus has risen. He's not here. And here's what I love. No, Jesus' body was brutalized and broken before he got to the cross. All right? And then he's hung upon a device that was created to torture and shame. But what do the ladies find when they get to the tomb? A dead body? Nope. A Jesus battered and bruised and trying to recover? No. The angel says, hey, he's alive and Jesus 
is already on the move. And that changes everything. For those who put their hope in Christ, our bodies will be made new. And that's what the resurrection tells us. It means, imagine this for a second. There will be a day when colostomy bags will be no more. There will be a day when Alzheimer's will be no more. There will be a day when mental illness and anxiety and depression will be no more. When every body organ works the way the great designer had designed it. There will be that day, just imagine, because of what we see in the resurrection, where all the harm that's done to our body by others because of their abuse or by ourselves or because of this fallen world we live in, where all of that will be undone. Friends, that is astonishing and that's the hope of the resurrection resurrection. But it's not just hope in the face of death, but it's also hope in the face of all the meaningless that death brings, right? Like death just casts a shadow of meaningless over all of our lives. I think of Stephen Hawking's when he talked about death, he talked about it just like, well, uh, computers whose components fail and just shuts off, right? If we think that's all there is, if we think that matter is all that there is, then that means all this is meaningless. C.S. Lewis writes helpfully and clearly about this. If you assume that nature is all that exists, that means you know that a meaningless play of atoms in space and time by a series of hundredth chances has produced you a conscious being who now knows that your own consciousness is an accidental result of the whole meaningless process and therefore itself is meaningless. Though to you, alas, it feels significant. The hope of the resurrection says that there is hope after death and there is meaning to life. But, but thinking about death and life, uh, there's a line from Hamilton I'm not going to sing it, but George Washington does. George Washington sings it to Hamilton, and he says, uh, dying is easy, young man. Living is hard. And I would say living with failure, living with your own failure is harder still. What about your failure? What about my failure? I would shudder to think if on the screen before you, my failures, you know, we talked about master's highlights. If we had Yancey's lowlights from the past 45 years, the times I failed in what I said, the times I failed when I should have said something, the times I failed in what I did, and the times I failed when I should have done something. My thoughts, if those were all up there before you, I shudder to think what that would look like. I want you to look at verse 7. Verse 7 tells us something. The angel says to them, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You know what the angel is letting us have an insight into? He's showing us how Jesus treats failures. Right? To be clear, all the disciples failed him. But Peter's name, right? Because Peter's claim of loyalty was the loudest and we had a front row to his failure. 
What about your failure? When I was in high school, um, one of my favorite authors um, was a French author called uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. He was this French existentialist, and there was so much mess and chaos in my life. Like His writing just made sense to me. He wrote a play called No Exit, but then I came across this book called Being in Nothingness by him, a collection of essays, and he has a chapter in this book called The Look. All right, stick with me here. All right, he has a chapter called The Look, and in it, uh, and yeah, Sartre, by no means a Christian, but he says something like this. He says, there is nothing more terrible than a stare. What does he mean by that? He means this, because if someone sees you who you cannot see, if you cannot control people's knowledge of you, it destroys you. If you can't pick and choose what people see of you, uh, if you can't give certain things and hold certain things back, you're destroyed. Why? Because deep down, we know we're not acceptable. Deep down, we know that we have failed. So what does Jesus do with failures? How does he deal with failures? You know how Jesus could have dealt with failures, right? The angel could have said to these women, hey, go tell the disciples Jesus is coming and he's ticked. They better be ready to grovel and they better have their apologies written. The angel could have told these ladies, hey, um, Go tell the disciples, they just need to go ahead and enter the transfer portal, all right? Because like Jesus is gonna go get a whole new squad. He has given up on them. But the angel tells them, go tell the disciples hope is coming for you. Jesus is coming for you and he will meet you there. That's the hope for failures that we have, friends. And, and that's the story of the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to glory, from the garden to glory. That's the hope for failures. I think sometimes people approach this book, the Bible, as if really it's just moral, moral fables uh, and moral heroes. But more often than not, this speaks of moral failures, and a loving God that pursues them and transforms them and heals them. It tells of a loving God who gives his son's very life that his son um, takes on all of our failures and gives us his obedience because he loves us so much. Hope has come for us. That's what this book speaks of. When you look at this Jesus and his res resurrection, you see that your deepest longings, a, 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 hope for in the a hope in the face of death, a hope in the face of failure, they're met in Jesus. And that has to change the way we live, friends. Right, so you need not fear death and you know that mercy waits for your failure. Let me ask you this. What do you have to fear in Monday? What do you have to fear in Monday? When you go about your life tomorrow, here's what I mean by that. When you go about your life tomorrow, do you realize that if you've put your hope in Christ, um, you already have all that you ever need and no one can take anything from you fully or finally. You cannot lose it. What do you have to fear? It's kind of interesting. Mark says these women... Even though they were told not to be afraid and to go and tell, Mark records that they went away and they were afraid and they didn't say anything, right? But we know that didn't last long. We know that within months, 
the Christian movement was exploding. In spite of cultural and political pressure to try to extinguish it in every way imaginable, the Christian movement was exploding. And that too demands an answer. Why would it explode? Because it turns out when people realize that they have nothing to gain because they already have the riches of Christ, and when they have nothing to lose because what's theirs in Christ can't be taken from them, they're free to live and follow their king. When, we, when Christians realize this, they're free to go and serve in the Pentagon, to free, free to go and serve at the Lamb Center here at Woodson on your summer swim team. You are free because your risen king has given you all that you need. Understanding that changes everything. You're free to go into all of those spaces and share the good news of the risen king. Friends, look at Jesus this morning, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, let's look at Jesus and all we have in him, how our longings are met and how that has to change the way we live out there. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in all that we have in Christ. We did not deserve it. But yet Christ has seen us. Christ has stared at us. And he has seen all of our brokenness that we cannot hide from him. And yet as Christ stares at us, he does not destroy us, but he pursues us in his love. He gives his life for us. May that astonish us this morning. May the wonder of that never be lost upon us. We pray all this in his name. Amen.